Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome back to part two of West Hansen's epic adventure, The Amazon, From Source to Sea. The, the police, I think three days later, helped, he was getting the police. They helped him find his kayak, but it, it was just a mess. So we weren't going to run it. Pulled up there with the tigers. We had our raft, we had our kayaks, and, and uh, we looked at it. And they just said, yeah, they weren't going to even run it. I mean, there were they. that's what, where, I, where I gained a lot of respect for the tigers, not for what they could do. But what for the safety that they that they took upon themselves? They just said, "Yeah, we might be able to make it. It's not worth it. We're going to portage this." And we lined the raft through and got got down at the bottom. That's when things got exciting. After we portaged Tiger Tooth Rapid, we're sitting in the eddy below hand, and we're all getting the and I'm getting in my kayak because after that I could kayak because you know when you know it was something I could manage skill wise. They're getting the raft together, and Eric Schlegel is there with his camera, and he's doing all, he's taking forever to get his camera together, and I'm kind of bobbing in the eddy, just kind of minding my own business. And I look down, and there's this couch pillow size, for lack of a term, bale, wrapped in a bunch of packing tape. And it's about the size of a couch pillow, and I thought, huh, well, look at that, just floating around in the eddy next to me. And I thought, what on earth is that? Surely it's not what I think it is. I brought up this bale, this taped up tight bale, and I had my river knife on me and I sliced over a little bit. And sure enough, it was some pretty tightly packed marijuana in this bale. And I said, holy crap. And so I thought I should bring this to the attention of the team. And so I called out of my kayak and up over the rocks to all the guys who were waiting in their raft and just kind of killing time waiting for Eric. And I said, hey, guys. Look what I found, you know, and it, it was pretty, it was pretty heavy. I mean, it was pretty densely packed. <laughs> you know, It was about a one foot by one foot by about eight inches, uh, square bale. And all of a sudden I was Mr. Popular amongst these young guys. Uh, <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially Simone, uh, who is from Chile. Uh, he was very happy. I'm, I'm not one who indulges and, and neither was Rafa Ortiz, but everybody else seemed Pretty excited about my find, and they started cheering my name and everything. It was kind of funny. All of a sudden, instead of just being a burden, I had some value on the team. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this West guy, oh, I think it's not so bad after all. So we took that on, and we all started going down the river, and I'm kayaking, and they're paddling. We're doing our thing and making our way to the town of Itzcuchaca, and we found another bale. Hey, more cheers, more cheers. And another bell, another bell. And I think, I don't know, eventually how many found like 14 or something of these bales. And as they say, paranoia ensued. Because at that point we figured, oh my gosh, either A, someone's missing some product, very expensive product, and they're going to want it back. And we've got it. And we weren't cheering as much anymore at that point. It was like, holy crap, and we're storing this inside the hatches. We're trying to hide it as much as possible. And 
<laughs> some of them are leaking, so there's this green slurry floating around at the bottom of the raft, and, and it's just wafting. I mean, no one's burning it, but it's just everywhere now. And then also, we're in this section where the anti-narcotic uh, police have checkpoints every five or six miles, and they're going through cars. It's like, well, yeah, you know, explain that to the federalities. Yeah, we, we may have some trouble with this here in central Peru highlands. And so I said, look, guys, you know, this is where I get to be the leader of the team. Here's the rule. If anybody wants this, we're giving it up. We're not hiding it. If we pull up someone and they say, hey, have you seen you know, a trunk full of pot? Yes, here it is. Take it from us, please. Or if any cops stopped us, we are telling them before they find it. That's the rule. And they are, okay, okay. So they all agree. And then we're getting close to it's Kuchaka. No one had discovered us, and we weren't surrounded by a, a bunch of pissed off drug dealers. Uh, and I said, "Look, my daughter and wife, and David Kelly, and all these other supporters are down waiting for us at this bridge in this town. We can't show up. We're on a National Geographic expedition. We can't show up with a trunk load of pot. That's just something that can't happen." So we found a cave on the way, and we hid it in this cave. Along with uh, a GPS, you know, we had a GPS, and they took a GPS in and said, okay, that's where it is. So whomever wants it after this on our team, there it is. And we finished, and and that's that's the end of that story. <laughs> now, there was one night uh, you were sitting around a fire drinking some of the local hooch, and a visitor came stalking in the night. Do you recall that? So we're a little more than halfway down the Montaro, about over 250-some-odd miles. Um, by then, I'd got my groove. I was feeling good. Um, and normally, at the end of the day, um, since I was with all these young guys, uh, they, they, they would stay up late and I would go to bed or whatever. And in the morning, I'm up early. You know, I'm up drinking my coffee, and they're kind of rolling out of bed slowly. So it's kind of weird how the di dynamic was at that. I was 50 years old at the time. And these guys were in their 20s. And I think one of them might have been in his early 30s, maybe 32 or 33. And they were all young guys. They were used to staying up late, drinking and partying and smoking things. And and uh, But this was an exception. We finished that day and it had been a long day. And I was kind of up. And the stars were out. It was a beautiful campsite. And I had, we had a big fire going. Uh, and saw it was cold, so I huddled up the campfire and we had Pisco with us, which is a local um, whiskey or tequila type of drink down there in Peru. And I was drinking some Pisco and enjoying the stars. And the guys had sacked out already. They they spread out their sleeping bags on the ground a few you know yards away in the dark, and they were out. They were snoozing. I had my hammock set up near them, and and uh, I believe Tino Speck had a hammock next to mine, so in the trees there. I'm just kind of enjoying the night and the fire. And next thing you know, man, I don't know, 50 yards in front of me, this is Boulder Field, and I see these two eyes coming out of the dark, reflecting off the firelight. You know, and, and uh, in Texas, West Texas in particular, we have those eyes. And uh, we call them mountain lions. And, and they, you can tell it's not just a raccoon or something by the distance between the eyes. I mean, that's a big head. Same thing with alligators. When you see those two red reflectors popping up out of the water, if those eyes have quite a bit of distance between them, there's a lot of alligator behind them. Well, it's the same thing with pumas. They call them pumas down there, mountain lions. And that, those eyes had some distance between them. And I was watching it and kind of keeping an eye out. And I had the machete near me, which was the only, we didn't have any firearms down there. 
And I started to watch it. Then next thing you know, it disappears. But then it pops out from another boulder closer. So it's making its way towards me, or at least towards the fire, from boulder to boulder. These boulders are about the size of Volkswagen's. In between them, and I thought, well, shit. All right. And uh, there goes my nice night. And so at that point, I figured I'd better tell the boys, because it had come up a couple more boulders. And so I went over to my Pito and... And they were sawing logs, and I kind of nudged them. I said, hey, I to, uh, I think there's a mountain lion hanging out. Just wanted to let you know. And he kind of mumbled. I said, no, no, I'm serious. And finally he said, what? And I said, uh, there's a mountain lion. I would call him a puma. Uh, I think it's hanging out. I think it's around us a bit. He said, all right. He went back to sleep. And I said, well, I've done my job. So I think I'm good. I went back to the fire, and Hung out, drink some more peace, go by myself, and enjoy such a pleasant evening. And finally figured, all right, that's that. I'm going to bed. I didn't see it anymore. And as I went back to my hammock, which was strung up not too far from Chino Speck's hammock, I had the salami I had to get rid of. We've been eating a lot of salami. And I thought, you know, I like Kino, and he might get hungry at night. Maybe I ought to strap this salami <laughs> right on his sleeping bag just in case he gets hungry at night. He'll have a snack to eat, so. I did give that some thought, just to be friendly. <laughs> just to be friendly. A little snack for the kitty. You got it. <laughs> there was one particular obstacle on the Montero, the water cannon. Oh, That man. seemed very dangerous. Can you tell us about that? Well, the dam, uh, Presa is the Spanish word for dam, uh, Presa Tabla Chaca is built. It's this dam that's, you know, on the Montero River, and it's a huge hydroelectric dam that was built. And it channels a bunch of the water from the Montaro River through these tunnels about 20 miles long through the Andes. And in the middle of these tunnels are turbines built into the ground. So this water is being shot. I think it's called the Bernoulli effect. So the, the, the more narrow you make an area for water to go through, the, the stronger the force and the faster it's going to go. What's well, spinning these turbines in these tunnels that go through the Andes? And it, there's a huge... Horseshoe Bend in the Montaro River there that goes over about 150 miles, and this, this tunnel cuts cuts across that bend. And there's a good chunk of water that flows down the Montaro, and there's a good chunk of water that goes through these tunnels. And that's the source of a controversy we can discuss later. But anyway, the uh, water comes out of those tunnels from the from Presa Tabla Chaca at a very uh, very high rate of speed. I mean, it's some it's some seriously pissed off water, and it's a lot of water. And so it doesn't just trickle out of this hole, this tunnel in the side of this mountain. It shoots out like you wouldn't believe, almost making it completely across the river. I mean, it's this huge arc of water. And it is just loud as if you're lying in the middle of a tracks on a freight train. I mean, it is loud. Well, you know, looking at it, you think, okay, we'll just paddle underneath this thing. Because it's, it's a pretty tall arch shooting out of the river, and it's about, uh, 30 or 40 feet, I'd say 40 feet above the surface of the river where the, where the tunnel shoots the water out. And it looked like a cannon. And that's what the people on the bank, our bank crew called it. It's a water cannon. And so I was in a, I was in the raft at that time with Juanito, just the two of us. We're paddling it. We're not oaring it. And, uh, we tried to pull up to where the water was shooting out and go beyond its reach. But there just wasn't any way to do it because the, Water that was aiming was shoving 
the entire river against these rocks, and they would shove us against the rocks. So that's when Juanito said, let's go underneath it. And I thought, great idea. All right. You're you're in charge, man. We're I'm following you. I'm with you fellers. And so he and I paddled the raft up and started going up underneath the water cannon. And granted, you can't hear anything. I mean, it is, it is deafening the roar uh, of this thing. And once we got up underneath that thing, we figured out that this water, this mass of water, also is creating a huge amount of wind, which makes sense in hindsight. You know, if you're fanning a thing, things moving, it's going to disturb the air out of it. Well, it was a pretty strong wind. So we got up underneath there, and it was only then that we realized, uh, well, this water is all being, any water that's not being shot out of the side of the mountain is all being shoved towards this thing in the maelstrom. Just like if you were to, you know, have a water hose going down in a bucket of water, everything in that bucket's going to go towards where that water hose is spilling into the, that water fount is spilling into the, the bucket. Well, it started dragging us towards this maelstrom, this, this, uh, where the water cannon was landing in the water. I mean, it, it killed us. I mean, there's at eight pounds a gallon and there's about a bazillion gallons there. We'd have died in no time. Probably not in a fun way either. So without a lot of talk, we kind of motioned, let's get out of here. So we paddled back up river and got out of there. And we got a new plan. And Juanito held on to the bow line of the raft while I paddled. And he walked up on, on the shore, on the rocky, slippery shore. Yeah, that's, <laughs> held that, the bow that was one of the yeah, sketchiest I, portages I've ever seen. In hindsight, maybe we both should have gone on the land. <laughs> but I, we thought it made sense that I would stay in the raft and paddle like hell so it wouldn't pull the raft away from him. You know, if he had dropped that rope, oh, man, it would have ruined my day. It would have screwed up my day big time. But he did, fortunately, and he didn't slip. And I was paddling like crazy, and he was pulling the boat, and we made it through the other side and cleaned our pants, and everything was much better. We were very happy after that. <laughs> but it was, it was a... It was a character builder. And luckily, just, we got it on we got it on video for the documentary. So, yeah, like I say, color. watching that portage because it's not like he was crossing dry land. He's no. crossing across uh, river or streams coming down all the moss on a steep incline. It was yeah, muddy, it was slippery, steep, rocky incline, and 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 wanting to you know he's not a big burly guy. He's he's kind of he's kind of a stream bean. Great. Great kayaker, but uh, eh, not sure you'd want him busting down your door if there's a fire in your house. You know, it's not he's, a, he's not a big fella. So anyway, it was uh, in hindsight, like I said, we might have made a different plan. <laughs> now, West, uh, you know, when you were telling that story about the puma and all you have is is the machete, it, uh, it reminded me of uh, on a training. Uh, that we were doing for adventure racing. We were out on a night training, practicing night navigation, right? In the coastal mountains of California. Well, there's a lot of wild pigs out there. Oh, yeah. And so when you were, you know, going along in the middle of the night, and if you disturb them, they, they take offense to them. They'll chase you, right? So one of the guys with us was a former Navy SEAL. He was training with us. And we're going along, and we talked about the pigs, and we could hear them. So... <laughs> We're, we're, we're stopped. We could hear the pigs and he pulls out this, this knife. It's a folder. He folds it open. And he's like this with the knife. Oh, I'm God. looking at him. I'm going, <laughs> what the hell are you going to do with that? And he goes, gonna wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> now we were all a little punchy because we've been going for a long time 
And I'm just looking at him. This I won't even get through that high. No. <laughs> and he looks at it. I think he kind of realizes, and the the fatigue wore off. He kind of yeah, that ain't gonna work. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's great. All right, you're out front. That's what I'd say. Okay, you you take point. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And those pigs are fast. Yeah, we've encountered quite a few here uh, uh, in, in Texas. That's the other thing on the Texas water safari. You get these wild pigs along the bank, and we were portaging through the swamp one time. I was on a tandem team with my buddy Jeff Weist, who is my expedition partner. And we got run across by a whole herd of javelina. Or what? No, they were, they were just wild pigs uh, in, in the swamp, and they were just all over the place. So, yeah, they're, they're, they swim really well, too. You'd be surprised. They, those pigs swim great. Speaking of animals, now the description of the the kayaking was dangerous enough, but those roads were even more dangerous. Oh but my you, God. but you had the lucky chicken. Tell us about the lucky chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah now we when we were switching between the five hundred miles of the the Montaro Whitewater section and then the final thirty eight hundred miles of flat water that went from you know, the Andes to the Atlantic, we switched over to sea kayaks. And uh, we had a whole different team for that as well. We didn't need the Tigers anymore because this was water that we could handle. Uh, the Tigers headed out, and there was this transition time of a few days. So we, we decided to go up to this town of um, Ayacucho, which in Quechua means death corner. And this is where some really horrendous battles took place in colonial times and modern times. So Sendero Luminosa was uh, born in Ayacucho from a professor that taught university there. And Ayacucho is fairly remote from the rest of Peru up in the mountains. So this death corner was where we, we were, teams could fly in and fly out of because it was a fairly modern city. It's actually a really beautiful, beautiful old town. Uh, very uh, a lot of colonial architecture, a lot of art, a lot of a lot of wonderful culture there. Um, and so we were we had driven up. We had a van meet us uh, at the where the Montaro spills at, meets the Apurimac there, and this little town of Portofoca. And we took this van up with our rafting gear and, and, and whitewater kayaks to Ayacucho, and we were meeting the other team coming back down, and. <laughs> we had hired this driver and he didn't speak any English and, uh, but our Spanish was good enough. I mean, uh, you know, we had guys from Mexico there. So yeah, we, and, and then Juanito was from Peru. So there wasn't a language problem, but this guy who Juanito decided to call Poppy, uh, the entire time, uh, I think just to piss him off, was driving like a bat out of hell. And these roads we climbed from, I don't know, 8,000 feet up to close to 14,000 feet. So it was a pretty steep climb, and the road was under construction. Now, the dirt road that had been there probably since the Wari or Inca times was in horrible condition. It was mud, and it was raining constantly because it is the, the rainforest. The road was washed out in several places, and they had a lot of construction equipment going on that tore it up even more, and it wasn't reinforced anywhere. So we were having to, at night, creep up higher and higher elevations through these scariers. And this guy would not drive slowly. He, he had stopped and fast. And that was it. And we had been drinking a lot by then. We were kind of celebrating getting off the Montara River, you know, in one piece. Plus, uh, you know, there's beer. So we were drinking. So you know, it was, what are you going to do? 
And so we had a lot of beer. We drank it all the way up, and then the poppy kept his window down, so we started freezing because we're climbing these elevations, and, and he is just driving like crazy. And it was dark, so we didn't see how dangerous it was until we headed back down maybe a week later. After we had the entire Flatwater team together, we weren't killed by Poppy on the way up. Well, we hired another van, because we didn't want to ride with Poppy ever again. So we found another van, with, and it showed up, and we loaded our, you know, we had three kayaks, two tandems, and one solo kayak on top, on the racks above. And, well, it looked like these two kids were driving this van. It was a big old Hayate van, or they called them High Ace down there, Toyota van, which is their go-to cargo van in Peru. And it was these kids. And I thought, oh, Christ, what have we, we gotten ourselves into with these, these children? Oh, no, no. They assured us everything would be fine. And the Flatwater team that went down there, we didn't have any fluent Spanish speakers. Uh, we all speak some Spanish because we're all from Texas. You know, and we used to be Spain. We used to be Mexico. So it's just, you know, you pick it up here and there. And so we, we can communicate all right. Poorly, but we wouldn't get the job done. So we had these two boys and, and the, the, the one driver we called Jose Bieber. Justin Bieber had been in the news a lot at the time and because he was up in arms because someone had made some pornographic blow-up doll that looked like him and he wasn't real happy with it. Well, he just kept his mouth shut. Probably no one would have known. But once we found out about it, man, it was the funniest <laughs> thing we had ever heard. So, well, poor Justin Bieber was the source of a lot of jocularity. So before we got out of Ayacucho, we're driving along and Jose Bieber pulls over to this nondescript little house on the edge of town, this Adobe house. We thought, all right, what's going on here? And they said, little momento, little momento. Okay. We got back. Uh, what's the call? I don't know. We're ready to go. Let's get moving. So he comes out with this chicken. You know, nothing else, just this chicken, a big old red chicken. And and he brings it in, and he, and he they got two bucket seats up there in the front of the van with the console in between. He sets that chicken on the console right there in between them, and we take off. And we're all kind of looking at each other, saying, what? This is lunch? I mean, what's what's the chicken all about, man? And, uh, and it was just the strangest thing. And he never said, we say, hey, you know, get my soul to the boil. <laughs> he said, he didn't answer. And finally, we had to pull over a lot uh, to take uh, breaks because we were drinking a lot of beer. And and it was only then we figured out how bad this road was. We were heading down it instead of up it. But it dropped off straight down several thousand feet in several places. And it was straight up on the other side of us. And it was one lane. And people are passing left and right, right? And it's just dirt with a lot of potholes and a lot of boulders in the way. So you had to kind of push those out of the way as you were making your way down. At one point, we got hung up. There was raining like hell, and there was a giant rock slide that blocked everybody. Well, coming down or, or, or coming towards us was a bus, and behind it a line of cars. And then we were in front of the line coming up or, or coming coming our way. And there's a couple of boulders in our way, so... Someone figured out how to work one of these large equipment operators. Another kid, I swear he must have been 12 years old, he jumps behind this excavator and he pushes a couple of these boulders that were about half the size of a Volkswagen bug off the side of the cliff, which is right next to us. Push, and we all, yay, good guy, that's out of the way. Well, Jose Bieber, our driver, was about as aggressive as Pappy, Poppy was coming up. He wasn't going to wait in line. So... Hurry, hurry, get in, get in. So we jumped in, in, in the van. We all got back in the van after, you know, waiting around for these boulders to move. And he shoves his way straight towards this bus that's heading down towards us. And the bus has got the inside lane. So he's next to the cliff that goes straight up. And we're on the edge. So 
Jose and his buddy pull the mirrors in. And I'm on the outside here. It's like, holy crap. You know, and, and we're looking, and I'm looking down 2,000 some odd feet. I mean, and I'm not exaggerating on the footage here. It is straight freaking down and, uh, through this jungle. And he pulls the mirrors in and he, he just guns it towards this bus. And whoever's going to win this pissing match is going to get by first. He wasn't going to wait for this bus, but he's going to do it on the outside. I'm like, oh my God. And there's no other door on the other side. There's no inside door. Plus, there's a bus inches away from us that we couldn't get out if we had to. I'm looking at the back door, and Jose's just making it happen, man. And and we're all leaning left, you know. We're all <laughs> trying to keep right. it on the road. <laughs> oh, my God. So we all rest to the inside of the van. On the, let's, let's put all our weight on these tires, you know, that kind of thing. And the chicken's running over there. You know, we're all working together on this. And, and we finally get past it, clean our pants again. And I thought, oh, crap, you know, Jose, Jose Beaver, really, let's not do that ever again. <laughs> I don't mind waiting for the bus, you know, and Jose, uh, he doesn't get what we're saying. So anyway, we pull off to the next town because we're out of beer. And and uh, and finally, I, I corner Jose and I say, man, all right, you know, you're, you're, you're the man, you're the man. What uh, What's with the chick? And he said, oh, man, that's a boy of sweat, though. That's our... That's our lucky chicken. I said, lucky chicken? What's up with the lucky chicken? He said, man, you don't want to drive this road without a lucky chicken. You're going to be in all kinds of trouble on this road. This this road here, you got to have a freaking lucky chicken. <laughs> all right, man. We'll take your word for it. Lucky chicken. So we got down in, into uh, the town of San Francisco near where we were going to be. There, the, our destination for putting back on the flat water. And he pulls over to another innocuous little house that has no bearing upon anything. Grabs the chicken, runs in, gives the chicken to whomever, comes back in and says, all right, we're safe now. We're good. <laughs> we just finished up our trip. <laughs> Must have worked, though. It seemed to have worked. So I've sworn by the lucky chicken from here on out. Now, you had another team coming in. Jason Jones, when he was flying in, had quite an experience on that plane. Can you tell us what happened with him? So I told you a little bit about Jason earlier when when we were down in Alphalaya and, and he he took it personal when he got shot at. You know, he really didn't like that kind of thing. Well, he's got some he's got a a, a pretty interesting military history. He was in the uh, Air Force and the Marines. And when he was in the Air Force, he I don't exactly know what his title was, but he uh, worked with giant C-130 transport jets and a lot of jets, and he knew a lot about them. He was some kind of engineer with them. And uh, as I said, we were in college together. I, I don't know what he studied, but it might have had something to do with intelligence or his, my degrees in psychology. He knew a lot about large jets. And so when he came to meet us in Ayacucho to join the Flatwater team to help Eric out, to be Eric's support photographer, he, everything has to go through Lima. So when you fly from Lima to Cusco uh, or to uh, Ayacucho, you have to fly over the Andes. And it's a beautiful trip. It can be a little bit horrifying, though. The Andes are tall. And he had been bouncing from Texas on standby flights all because his girlfriend, Chris, at the time, got him these free flights. And he was he waited forever in Lima for a flight, several hours. He finally got on one. They took off, and they're flying over the Andes. And they got up to elevation, and he looks out the window at one of the jet engines, and there's this flap up. And he knows what that flap is. 
and he knew this was not supposed to be. This wasn't part of his world. So he calls over the flight attendant. And by the way, the flight attendants down there in Peru are wonderful. They're multilingual. I don't know how many languages they speak. They speak, speak them all fairly fluently. And so he, and Jason speaks enough Spanish. He could have done that, but he spoke to her in English and said, Hey, uh, see that flat? That's not supposed to be happening. She's all smiles, being a flight attendant and whatnot. And, and uh, she, no, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine, sir. And he says, No, 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 no. I, an Air Force veteran, I, I'm a flight engineer. I, I know what's going on here. I'm not just some Yahoo saying there's a flap up. That's bad. And he explained to her in technical terms why he says, just tell your pilot this. And he told her what to tell her. And he said, just, just tell the pilot. That's all I ask. And so she's all smiling. Sure, I'll do that, sir. She's being, you know, very patronizing and treating him well. And well, a few minutes go by and then she comes back and her face changed. It was no longer this happy-go-lucky, sir, can I get you, you know, some cookies face. It was not that face. It was a little, little more serious face. And she said, thank you, sir. The pilot thanks you. Yes, we're aware of it. Yes, we know it's not good. Can we get you a drink on the house? <laughs> he said, yes, please. Jack, Jack and Coke, make it a double. Well, going. She did. She kept the Jack and Cokes coming. And this was in the morning. Uh, they, they took off in the morning. He was supposed to meet us around lunchtime in Ayacucho. And uh, we're all running around town doing our thing, getting gear ready in Ayacucho. She kept coming. You want another? And every time she brought him a drink, which was frequently, she'd take a little look out the side window at that flap, and it was still there. And it wasn't like anybody was going to crawl out there and fix it, you know? And so they're pulling into... Ayacucho and winding their way through the mountains towards the one landing strip there. And man, as soon as they come in final approach and that airspeed drops down, flames start popping out of that flat. And the only thing keeping those flames at bay was the fact that they were going a million miles an hour. Now they weren't. And they dropped down a couple hundred miles an hour above stall speed. That flame popped out of there. And that pilot landed fast and hard. He said that pilot. There was no, uh, there was no subtlety about it. He hit the ground, hit the brakes, reversed whatever engines there were, flaps were up, the whole thing, and he came to a skidding, er, star skid, hut stop, and right then, that that engine just immersed in the flames. That jet engine just just blew right up. It didn't blow up, but it, it flames were all over the place. Fire trucks were there, and they. They foamed it down. They covered the whole thing with foam. They covered the whole plane with foam. They just foamed the crap out of it. And they put that thing out, no problem. And at that point, when the the door opens, out, down there you have to go out on the runway. So the, the little uh, stair truck comes up with the stairs, and it puts up against and everybody. And the pilot says, thank you for flying, and uh, you all have a great day. <laughs> everybody exited like this was an everyday occurrence. And Jason pulls out, and he... We, he finally, we finally, he's coming to the hotel where we're staying at that point, and he comes out, of, he falls out of the cab. This <laughs> is like 11 o'clock in the morning, and he just falls out of the cab. Well, we thought, look, we all like a good drink now and then, Jason, but this is 11 o'clock. He said, oh, what, what, what is going on here? Why are you so drunk? And he's, oh, God, you wouldn't believe what I <laughs> And then uh, he went and slept for the next 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then he got into the uh, into the vehicle with the lucky chicken, and then had the death road death drive uh, down to the bottom. Well, Jason wasn't in that van. He and Eric okay. came up the day later. Oh, okay. Uh, so you spared uh, that. They they were spared that. They had their own nightmare because 
they came down the, 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 the road to hell at night and during a thunderstorm and ended up camping at this. Uh, they slept in the van where the road had washed out completely. And then to get by it in the morning, they had to tie a rope on and they had 50 people pulling the van up because it was too slippery because they were sliding in the mud. They would have slid off the side of the thing into the canyon. So they had their own nightmare, which included everybody trapped up there cooperating with rope to pull the vehicles past this washout. So, yeah, they they had more reason to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so we finished the whitewater on the Montaro. And the dangers posed by that section was the, the river and the elements. But the next section, the red zone, what dangers were you anticipating there? Well, the red zone was uh, this area where all the cocaine is harvested and, and refined. So we did have to watch out and, uh, you know, be careful. We were held at gunpoint. I guess one, two, three times there. The first incident was the first day we were kayaking. A team of five of us, and Eric and and, and Jason and their chase boat were several days behind us. They still had to make a lot of arrangements to catch us, but we weren't going to wait around. We had our kayaks, we had our gear. Let's let's get going. Well, we pulled over to get some water towards the end of the day out of the stream that was coming out of the side because the the Ine River is very muddy, so we got water from the streams that were clear. Well, there's a village there, and Attracted a bit of attention, and next thing you know, we're surrounded by a bunch of guys with guns. And guys meaning kids, a bunch of kids with these 12-gauge single-shot guns. That was the first time we were held at gunpoint. And I had my camera going, luckily, at the time, so I got it all on video. And it's, well, turns out the chief uh, of the village, and and they were in their all-traditional uniform, which were soccer shorts and soccer jerseys, because football's huge down there. And... They surrounded us, and they wanted to search all our gear. Well, he was drunk. He got close to us, and we could tell this guy was, was three sheets to the wind. But we thought, let's let's make friends. They're not shooting us. We don't want to – this is their home. We don't want to piss anybody off. You know, let's be respectful. So we, we pulled open our hatches let us start searching stuff, and he wanted to know where, the, where we had our druggists. They he thought we were drug runners. Now, we had these white sea kayaks with National Geographic flags on the back and all our – Sponsor decals and everything. I thought, man, he must think we're the most stupid drug runners in the entire world. This is not exactly clandestine. So uh, we let him search a few things. There's going to be too much for him to search, and he's kind of stumbling around at this point. And by then, the gun boys were getting bored. They were they had all their gun barrels pointing down towards. I mean, they were barrels of their feet. The, the guns were sitting on their toes. I guess they were taught not to put them in the dirt, but. I could just see this. I thought, how many people, how many of these gun boys around here are hobbling around now? You know, half a foot. And we actually talked amongst ourselves because the guys spoke a a strange dialect of Spanish. It might have been mixed up with the, with their local dialect. So we weren't exactly, the Spanish was okay between us, but it wasn't really, we weren't really getting it all. But they weren't understanding any English. I know that. And so at one point we, talks amongst ourselves about, well, should we just grab their guns from them and beat the crap out of them? Because uh, we could. They were standing too close for them. They didn't know, you know, this wasn't jungle warfare. And one of our boys, Pete, he was uh, he's a Vietnam vet, so he's got a little experience in this. And, and all of us knew a little bit about guns, like I said. But I thought, nah, let's just be friendly. Let's not make any enemies. They're not pointing the guns at us anymore. Let's just 
do what they say. And sure enough, that paid off. The guy gave us his blessing, his drunken blessing. By then, all his guys were bored, and they wanted to be rid of us anyway. So he just said, go on, go on. So he did. And I shook his hand, and he said, we're out of here, man. So that I thought, all right, that's the way it's going to be here. And I'd read stories about guys that were shot, shot, either with arrows or guns down there, that were doing exactly what we were doing. So that just made us even more hypervigilant than we already were. Well, the place has a history. In fact, you referred to the term Pelicara. What does the term Pelicara mean? Uh, Pelicara means, uh, the direct translation from Spanish is, is peeled face, or to peel or peeling or whatever, but peeled face. And the first time that uh, the Spaniards made it into this area, they were the first fair-skinned people that the indigenous people had ever seen. They're, they're generally a dark brown people that live down there. The the conquistadors that made it in there, Zorro and all these others, uh, very fair-skinned. They're Salamancan, I believe. And they only time the locals had ever seen someone with a white face was when they saw a skull, as if the skin was peeled off. So they started calling these people like they peeled the skin off their face, the brown skin. And now their faces were these white bones, so they're pelicatas. It's a derogatory term uh, that's used today, and they kind of laugh at people that we know down there will laugh and call us a It's like calling someone a Yankee. You know, it's all oh, the damn Yankees are okay. But uh, pelicata was what we were called. And when we paddled by a village in on the Ine River, not the Tambo, but definitely the Ine, there are a lot of villages, the people would run from us yelling, pelicata, pelicata. You know, we were the bad guys, and for good reason. Prior to, you know, the past couple hundred years, anytime white guys would show up, it wasn't, they, they weren't being there to be friendly. They were either wanting their natural resources, uh, the oil, the diamonds, the minerals, whatever, or they're there to try to say, hey, our religion is the right religion, and your religion is the wrong one, and uh, you need to change now. Uh so there's not a good reputation for white guys being in their area. And we understood that, and we were going to treat it delicately. We weren't there to make a mark or, or, or be amongst them or anything. We just wanted to get through there and not, not bother these poor people. But we were met with fear wherever we went until we got off the Indian River to Puerto Coca. Um, and frequently along the Indian River, people would motion us over and say, that's... That's okay. We're we're just going to pick up our pace from here on out. We camped. The one time we camped there on the Ine, we camped. We found our camp at night, and we tried to keep it really quiet, but people still saw us. So we were very apprehensive about being on the Ine River. And you know, as I mentioned, people have been shot down there even recently. I mean, these years. I mean, there's a missionary several years ago who had lived amongst them for years, and then one morning walked out of his his cabin. There's a little house they lived in down there, and there's a band of a, a tribe that just filled them full of arrows. And no one knows why, because he got along with these people. He spoke their language. Everything was fine, but something something changed, and it was his time to die. So we weren't working by our own rules there. Yeah, you recounted in your book a legend or superstition among those local tribes about how the Paracara would, would take their blood and and use it to lubricate their or grease their their machinery, and still yeah, that, yeah. Currently, that's that was some of the myth 
surrounding the Pelicanos. There are white guys there that either steal organs because they knew down there that their organs were clean because they ate well. They didn't eat junk food. And they know what junk food and Coca-Colas were. I mean, this is not, these aren't backwards people. They're very intelligent. But their myths would say these are, these are organs, they're stealing organs to take back to, you know, their country to use because they've corrupted all their organs. Or the other one back, you know, started a century ago was they had this machinery with black grease while they would steal children. And our blood is dark and they use that blood to grease their machines. So. And, and children would go missing all the time because it's the jungle. I mean, it's it's hard not to die down there. I mean, there are things, you know, jaguars and, and lions that want to kill you. There's an Indian bear. There's there's several things going on. Snakes. Uh, I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways to die down there, including just slipping in the river and drowning. So people go disappeared or, or disappeared all the time, including children. And something had to happen. Someone had to take the blame for it. So. Why not these guys who have been screwing us over for centuries? Yeah, it makes it for a touchy situation going through there, as you all found out. Yeah, and we did not want to be in a situation where we had to defend ourselves against these poor people that have been persecuted by people that look like me for the past 300 years. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When um, I was down in Guatemala on some humanitarian projects, we're in the Alta Verapaz region. When we first got there, they're all very standoffish, all the Maya. And we learned that they were afraid we were going to come there and take their children. And I had no idea how this, how it came about. We were there helping to build schools, setting up medical clinics. And, you know, there was a lot to overcome before they started trusting us. And, uh, but once they did, you know, I guess I was, that was the safest I ever felt. Once, once all those folks all of a sudden flipped over and I was part of them. Yeah. I never felt safer anywhere else. But yeah. uh, interesting. I understand that I, I perspective. That's for sure. Now the Ronderos, I got to ask they they're the local narco police force, and yeah. you have to get permission from them to travel. So yeah. do, do you go to an office? Do you go online to the Rondero internet site? How do you get permission? You don't go online, but you do go to an office. You go to the uh, the head of whatever town you're in, and this one was Portacoca. Uh, and Puerto Coca is a modern town. I mean, they've got electricity, they've got cars, they've got trucks. You, you can actually drive there on a very, very bad road through the mountains. And they've got stores. You know, you can buy food there and they've got refrigeration. It's a modern, fairly modern town for being a jungle outpost. So uh, we went to the mayor. Uh, actually, Jason and Eric went to the mayor of Puerto Coca and said, okay, what paperwork do we need to get through here? And the mayor told them and they filled out the paperwork. Well, we filled it out and you know, we swore we, who we were and what we were doing and how many days we were going to be there and where we were going to go and who was always with us and, you know, everything they needed to know about us. And then um, granted us permission and he said, here, make sure you stop at these checkpoints along the way and let them know, hi, here's our paperwork. And I still have that paperwork. It's kind of cool. Please don't kill these guys. <laughs> you know, it's okay. And, and uh, you know, they've got their own little bureaucracy down there. But then leaving the meeting was kind of funny uh, after the alcade because then he says, oh, by the way, we had these tourist brochures. Uh, and he gave us the tourist, this glossy tourist map of the whole area with the, where the waterfalls are and the natural wonders to see. And it says, you know, welcome to our area and, and, and so forth. So it's kind of funny. It's like, here you go. You know, it's great to have your tourism dollars here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is a, quite the paradox. Eco-narco ter- eco-narco-tourism. Uh, Exactly. As, as, as Schlegel, Eric Schlegel probably said, 
you need to work on your uh, welcoming committee here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that just seems so strange that uh, the narcos would have this formal travel passes. Right. Well, they had a business to run. And that's what, when we were talking to the guy in Puyene who was running the narco trafficking in that area, he said, look, we're all brothers. We all need to get along. And he was real down on the boat captain who wouldn't show his papers. He said, you know, we all need to trust each other. He said, this is just a business. If no one bought it, we wouldn't be selling it. You know, if rocks sold, we'd be selling rocks. They're not evil people. They're just trying to make a living. And it just happens to be with this drug that's, you know, highly desired in the United States, you know, and, and, and elsewhere in the industrialized world. And, you know, to come down on them primarily, who you know, they want to buy food and this, that, and the other. They have very few resources. It's, I'm not saying what they're doing is right. I'm just saying it's not as clean cut as good guys and bad guys. And so they, they don't want, you know, lawlessness. They want their people to be treated right. They want the people to be fed. They want health care. They don't want anybody hurting anybody. And so they, they have a very strict law enforcement uh, system. Interesting. Without without the police, without the Army, without the CIA. It's like, no, no we're, we're going to manage our own down here. Probably I imagine better. The, uh, I imagine the courts are a little more cut and dry than ours, too. <laughs> the third and final leg is... Basically, a long, flat-water run to the to the coast. And can you tell us about that section? Well, when we got onto the flat-water, I was in now I was down in my element. You know, the white-water I was got, getting used to, but white-water is very anaerobic. While I was trained in white-water in the 1980s, this was, you know, this was a good, you know, almost 30 years later. So my white-water skills weren't, weren't what my flat-water skills was, were... But now we're in my backyard, uh, ultramarathon canoeing. So I knew what to eat. I knew how to paddle. My shoulder was less uh, of a threat of going out because I could adjust my stroke. We were using wing blades, which are very you know, powerful double-bladed paddles. So now it's just long, slogging miles through the humid jungle. Once again, it was a different type of beauty. It's still very green. smelled amazing. And as I think I put in my book, if, if green had a smell, that's what it would be. It was just like a, a freshly mown lawn times a hundred. It smelled amazing. It was really, it was really nice because in the Andes, there was no smell because we were above the tree line. There was no foliage until we got down to the, the cloud forest. So when we started smelling things again, it was like, oh, this is great. You know, this can actually smell things. Well, that was a whole different world. Cultures were different. Uh, Spanish was more uh, ubiquitous, so we could communicate a little bit better. And the towns took on a different flavor. These were jungle outpost towns. And logging was big, legal and illegal, so we saw a lot of illegal logging. And we met up with a timber, a guy that owned a timber company down there, and he explained to us how we could tell the difference between legal and illegal logging. And, and the, the logs that were on a, uh, a barge being hauled around, that was legal logging. We saw huge rafts of logs being floated down to the mill. That was the illegal log, generally speaking, because the, the legal loggers wanted their wood to stay dry to be made into flooring or, or, or lumber. Flooring is a big deal, these, these, these old hardwoods. And, and then also they didn't, uh, they didn't fit old growth. Uh, a lot of the, they, they only, the, the legal lumber companies only cut it 
cut new growth. And so the team dynamic changed a lot. Uh, we had a fellow there who, you know, wasn't happy most of the time with anything. And so that was, that became a bit of a, an obstacle for me as a, as a team leader and how to deal with that. And that was very difficult. And it really taught me, you know, to ask important questions and to look closer at personalities when I'm choosing teams in the future. And, you know, and he's a decent guy, you know, it wasn't like he was inherently just an ass, but it was, it was just a tough situation for him. And, and he had trouble adapting to this, the team dynamic in which we were, we were confined, you know, 24 seven. So it was just not a good fit. And that, that tested, you know, my abilities, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't great at it. And, and I've learned a lot. So hopefully I'm better now. And so am I. Yeah. One of your teammates had a, a quote and he said, it gets pretty primal when food is important. <laughs> you know, yeah. So then, you know, as opposed to the whitewater where we would, you know, kayak for a short amount of time and camp for the day. And it was, the mileage was a lot shorter and, and our actual paddling time was, the water was pushing us long. So we didn't really have to paddle that much on the whitewater. Well, flat water was all paddling. So we were doing 12 to 14 hours nonstop. We would drift and eat. Rarely would we pull over and eat, but sometimes we'd pull over to, for lunch. You know, we got to the point where we'd stop once a day, but we wouldn't stop more than that. So this was nonstop paddling. It was hot. Luckily, it wouldn't, it wasn't as hot as Texas. So I think a lot of people who hadn't been to the Amazon will be surprised to hear that I think the highest it got was 90 degrees, but it was, you know, damn near 100% humidity. But it was cooler than Texas. At Texas at the time, it was 110 Fahrenheit and, and, and really humid and hot. So we felt, yeah, 90 degrees, you know, all of us boys from Texas, we were okay. It's like, yeah, it's, we've been in a lot hotter than this. So that, that wasn't a barrier. But it was still wearing on us and our our level of fatigue was 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 pretty constant. We would eat a lot. We, you know, just picture going fourteen hours a day without stopping, you're constantly burning stuff, burning calories. And so we could not eat enough. And getting fat and protein was really difficult. Carbs we could eat left and right. And we we're having electrolyte pills and we we're drinking plenty of water because we we're filtering our water right out of the river, so that wasn't a problem. But just getting enough food for that kind of effort was, as Ian said, very primal. We were always hungry. Always. And as you proceed down, it was day after day after day of just hard, consistent paddling to get down through there. I mean, you're covering hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. The uh, Take us to the mouth of the river, because that, at that point, though, it changed again and got a little dicey. Yeah, about that. Um, the Amazon gets bigger as it goes because you have these these larger rivers flowing into it. To give an example of the size, I mean, the Amazon is frequently five miles across. And this is a fast-flowing river that's five miles across. So just think of a lake, your, your average local lake. And it's sitting there plastic. You can look and you can barely see five miles over there. But now the picture moving really fast, you know, at eight knots. You know, so now it's, this is what we're in. This is our world. And we're paddling, you know, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 70 miles a day on this river. And, and we're actually having to move, even though the river's moving, you can't just sit still. We're, we're trying to make headway. Well, the river's getting wider and wider. And so anytime we have to make a turn, it's like, well, do we 
cross here and it cut off some of this turn. It, it was a big deal. You don't just cross a river when it's five miles wide and hauling ass. You know, it, it took a lot of planning. The Madeira River, for instance, when it comes in below Manaus, it would be the second largest river in the world if it had gone to an ocean. But it didn't. It spilled into the Amazon. So now it wasn't deemed, you know, the longest river in the world or one of the second longest. So that's how much... The Rio Negro, same thing when it spilled in there. It was just like a whole other ocean coming into this this one river, the Amazon. And so it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And the waves were getting bigger, but we were managing it fine, and we are still moving along well, but it's just daunting. Well, 10 days before we finished, we pulled into the town of Santorin, which is known as the, the Riviera of the Amazon because it's this beautiful resort town with black beaches and, and good food and nice people and and it was just a really beautiful town. And we had to make a new plan then because there are a lot of pirates uh, between Santa Rim and the Atlantic Ocean for the next few hundred miles. I can't remember how many hundreds it is from there. And we hired a, an off-duty narcotics officer, Sergeant G.S., to come on a boat that we had hired to follow us, which was great because we could put all our gear on the boat. And they would follow us. And we we were lighter then and we traveled a lot faster. It was, we were down to... Three people by then. It was uh, Jeff Wiesty, Ian Rolls, and myself. And Jeff and, and Ian were in a tandem kayak, and I was in a solo kayak, sea kayak. At that point, the the tidal flow was starting to get to us. And this isn't the famous Kiruruku or whatever it's called, that this giant tidal bore that comes in. It's not that. But every six hours, the Pacific Ocean, I mean the Atlantic excuse me, the Atlantic Ocean, would send its tide up the Amazon River. And we would make zero headway because the tide would come in so strong. And we'd watch our GPSs, and when we got down to zero miles an hour or one mile an hour, it's like, okay, time to pull over. And so every six hours, that dictated our schedule. We didn't do this day-night schedule anymore. We would paddle in the middle of the night if the river, if the tide had flowed around. So every six hours, we'd get up and we'd, we'd continue paddling in the direction of the river. It was flowing towards the Atlantic for, for about 10 days. And then we wormed our way through the southern part of Johan Marajo, which is a giant island the size of Switzerland at the end of the Amazon River. Through all these mangrove swamps and everything, we finally came out near the town of Belém, a very large town in Brazil, near the, the mouth of the Amazon River. And that's where our, we lost our guide boat. He couldn't go any further because the waves were going to get too big for his type of boat. So he gave us all our gear back, and we paid him the rest of the money we owed him. And we were on our own again for the last 70 miles. Well, we met up at the little town of Mascaro with Jeff's wife and, and his grandson were there to meet us. And Jason was there and Eric was there and they were going to try to follow us to the end, but they couldn't find a boat. And we said, well, we can't wait around. We're taking off. So we took off in the middle of the night, the last 70 miles. And we handrailed all these mangrove swamps. And so there's no land. It was just swamps. So if we wanted to pull over, we couldn't. And the tide was coming and going. And at one point we had paddled about almost 42 hours without sleep. And we found this giant sand dune island across from this, this beacon, this lighthouse-type beacon. It was an unmanned beacon that acted as a lighthouse. It's called Point Taipu. And many Amazon expeditions have finished at Point Taipu, thinking, okay, well, this signifies the end of the Amazon River. Well, it, it didn't. I mean, we could see land beyond Point Taipu. There's another, uh, I guess, 12 miles or to, to, to go after that. And I looked on GPS like, yeah, we don't get to the Atlantic Ocean for a while here. So it said, let's get some sleep. So we pulled up on this sandbar 
that was dry. It was a big old island, and we pitched our tents, and we, it was getting to be dark. Let's let's get some sleep, and tomorrow we'll wake up, and we'll paddle out to the Atlantic Ocean, and then we'll paddle back in. Well, about two hours after we'd fallen asleep, and we were wiped out, and our water, we didn't have any water because it's all salt water by then, or brackish water. So we had very little water and very little food. We didn't have enough water to heat more food either, cook more food, because you realize, oh, we've had water all this way, but now the water's brackish. Can't filter that. So we were conserving our water. About two hours after we went to bed, Jeff comes to my tent and wakes me up. Hey, Wes, time to get up. You got to go. And I, and I thought, well, this is strange, because Jeff's always the last one out of bed. And Jeff, at that point, was a coffee drinker. He's a tea, tea, teetotaler now, but man, if you didn't wake Jeff up with a cup of coffee, he's not getting up. So the fact that he was waking me up, I knew something was wrong. He said, tide's coming up. I stepped out of the tent into water. Now, we were 12, 14 feet above the water when we went to bed. And the mouth of the Amazon is 90 miles wide there. If you look on a map, is literally 90 miles. So we had misjudged the tides or something big time, and the water was rushing in fast. We just tore the tents down, didn't try to pack anything. We threw everything in the hatches of the kayaks and jumped in the kayaks. When I got in my kayak, I was in knee-deep water. It was coming in that fast. Like, holy crap, and it's dark all around us. It's about, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, I guess. And, uh, and so we look all around us, and we're way, well past any cities. You know, we, we've gone almost 60 miles beyond Belém, Mosquero. We're out in these mangrove swamps. There's no place for a village out there, so there's no there's no lights. And, of course, it's gorgeous. But we're in the middle of the mouth of the Amazon. It's kind of freaky. I said, well, what do you, what do you boys want to do? We've only slept for a couple of hours. I mean, we can go try to find land. I mean, we knew what direction it was in, but whether there would be any land there or not is anybody's guess. It's just mangrove, flooded mangroves. So it's like, well, if I can do us any good, well, let's just go for it. Let's just finish this thing. So, all right. Let's go. I mean, the water was calm. Let's, let's give her a shot. And so we turned on our spot trackers, which we had one in each boat, or I had one in my boat, I can't recall. And luckily, my sister, Barbara Eddington, who's the team, who's our expedition manager for all our expeditions, she was up and she saw it pop on. And so she alerted the internet world that, hey, these guys are going for it. So we started paddling out to the Atlantic Ocean and had the GPS on so we knew how far to go. And we were paddling and it was blissful. This bioluminescent algae or life forms started lighting up all around us whenever we disturbed the water with our blades or our cut. And it was just gorgeous. It was surreal. It was heavenly. It was stars on the water. It was really accurate because it looked like as many stars above as there were below. And it was just wonderful. And that went away fast. Because when we got past that sandbar to which we had camped, now, all of a sudden, since we were in fairly shallow water, we started having to go through breakers. And the breakers were getting bigger and bigger. We hit some three-footers, and we paddled through them, and then we'd get to some flats, and we'd paddle for that for a while. They kept getting bigger and bigger. Then we stopped being breakers, fortunately, and became rollers. But the rollers got to be bigger and bigger, and there were these fish traps out there that were made of these logs that were sticking straight up out of the, the, the bottom. They'd be planted in the river in this huge corral that was about 50 foot in circumference uh, when the tide was out. And then fish would come in during high tide and when they would see the fish get trapped in these big old log traps. 
And this was recorded back in the 1800s during Robert Lewis Herndon's expedition in 1852. He, he talked about the same traps out there. So this was an old, old thing that's been going on a long time, this fish trap. Well, we had a kayak through with no lights. And so we're going up on these waves and these fish traps would disappear. And then we'd go down and then these spikes would come up. And we'd have to figure our way through these things, you know, that were about four feet across and kind of weave our way before they spike up through the middle of one of our Kevlar carbon fiber kayaks. It was, it was a bit unnerving. And so we'd have to aim it just right. We finally got past it. Well, we didn't have any water set up, so we'd raft up every once in a while. And what was one of the most scary things is we didn't put on our PFDs. We were in such a hurry to get moving. We had our skirts with us. And normally we'd have a PFD you know, ready at hand, but we had shoved them all in. We, we thought we were going to land again somewhere. We didn't plan on this. So we're out there, the three of us, without the most basic element of being out there, a flotation device. But the water was so rough, there wasn't any way that we could have dug them out of our cockpits, our hatches. So we knew this was a, a bad place to be. So we thought, all right, well, let's just get this thing over. Hell, it's only 12 miles. How long could it take? Six hours. That's how long it takes. We paddled straight east into the Atlantic Ocean, and the waves got bigger and bigger. Luckily, there were rollers. They weren't breakers. and But our they came in so strong that it, it really slowed our progress because the tide was so strong. But we kept chugging forward and chugging forward and chugging forward. The stars would disappear on the horizon, and that's how we could tell how tall the waves were. And then we would turn. My boat was 18 feet long, and we would measure them. They would look at my boat going up, and, and there were 30-foot faces of these rollers because they could oh, measure wow. it against my boat. We'd have to race to the top of it and slam down the other side and race down the bottom and get our speed up to get up to the top of the next one. They just kept getting bigger and bigger. It was a sphincter-tightening moment, I can assure you. Well, we finally got past this place that we had labeled on the GPS as, you know, stop forest, you know, on the forest dump, maybe. And uh, we figured there we could stop. And we got, got there. And I said, well, let's, let's go another couple hundred yards just to make sure we finish the entire Amazon. So then we paddled out into the ocean for a couple hundred yards. And I said, all right, boys, <laughs> let's get the hell out of here. We're done. We turned tail and we surfed in. Luckily, going with the waves was a lot faster to the nearest beach. And we made it in. And Jeff and Ian tumped over right then because we hit some breakers. And all, all their stuff splattered around. And we knee-deep water. We grabbed everything together and. And we found this one bag of Cheetos. Ian loves Cheetos. And uh, it doesn't offer much sustenance, but we were looking for any pleasure out there. And so we gave Ian all the Cheetos. But it's like, oh, this one little piece of heaven. Ian, Ian got his little bag of Cheetos. And we made camp for the night, and, and, and that was that. Quite an epic story. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Lessons learned and thoughts about exploration. Your book, you know, not only is it a great read, for the adventure expedition about it. Um, I think it's a must read for anybody who's thinking about putting together this type of a, an expedition. And because you, you really document very well all the challenges that an expedition leader has to face. And I, I thought it was just an excellent work. And so I wanted to give a, a special shout out for that book because I think it's well worth the, worth the read. Thank you. And I've got to give a lot of credit to Jeff Moog. He's the uh, former editor of Canoe Kayak Magazine and a good friend. Uh, Jeff was my editor for that book, and uh, he uh, helped me carve it down to about half the size. 
he took out a lot of stuff that would have made me look like more of an ass than I already am. <laughs> he did a he did a really good job of, of helping me carve that down into something that's that's readable. Well, you had a, a, a section of quote in this book where you describe, I think, from what you learned from this expedition about what a the leader of an expedition has to be. You know, somebody who's confident in what they're doing. They got to make be able to make decisions, um, but they also have to listen to their their team. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, and the way the way I see. Um an expedition leader, at least the way I like to do it, I've learned from a lot of people, specifically Roald Amundsen. And I think Roald is, was a, a, a great expedition leader because I think, like him, what I try to do is I see myself as an employee of the expedition. It's my job to manage it. It's my job to make sure everybody's taken care of. They're all getting along. The dynamic's good. If we have some injuries, it's taken care of. I am an employee. I'm not a guy that stands in the back and tells people what to do. Plus, we have to have consensus. It's not what I would call a democracy necessarily, because I really feel like all the responsibility is on my shoulders. But if there's one person on the expedition that doesn't want to paddle from here to there or do something because it sounds risky, all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a weak link you need to address. And you, need, you can't just say, well, the majority rules. That's not how expeditions work. You can't have one person that's hesitant or that isn't into what's going on because that one person, like I said, the one bad apple spoils the entire bunch. And I'm not saying that one person would be a bad apple, but if they're not fully into whatever you're doing in that moment, you're going to have the entire expedition break down. And, and that's been proven time and again on classic expeditions, on modern expeditions. You've got to have, and not a majority, you've got to have the entire team in on it. And I really feel like as an expedition leader, that's my job to make sure that happens through the planning stages and also the execution stages. We were in Russia, uh, kayaking the Volga River, Jeff and I, and, and it was a real interesting lesson over there. There's one of our friends in Russia who asked us one time, President Obama was in office at the time, and he said, uh, President Putin has 98%, um, you know, uh, favorability, whereas your President Obama only has 48%. How can he rule? with so many people criticizing him. And we said, and that really was a eye-opener to us, and it was kind of surprising they looked at it from that perspective. We, we said, well, we don't elect the president to rule. We elect him as a manager. He's our employee. He is hired to help manage things that we consider important. And then after a few years, he's, he's fired. He's, he can't, you know, his, his contract is up. He's an employee. Well, that's the way I see my job is an expedition leader. I'm there for the team. And, you know, if, if you're the type of leader that says, it's my way or the highway, or this is the way it's going to be, and y'all can all go to hell, I'm the leader, eh, you're not going to have success, successful expedition. You really got to have not just a majority, but 100% agreement on everything y'all do. Now, that is a, a fine line to walk, to be both a, a leader, make sure things get done, as well as forming and getting that consensus and everybody buying in on the next, the next leg of the journey. Yeah. Well, and you also have to have a team. I mean, I don't want to surround myself with people that, that are, that are just yes people. It's, it's like, I got to have a team that, you know, you know, as the author said in the, you know, the famous book fields of fire, he said, you know, that's not in the shit business. You can't give it or take it. And, and, um, if a, the team members need to be able to tell me that I'm full of shit and they have to feel comfortable doing so or tell me I'm wrong. 
And if they don't, then I feel a huge burden on my shoulders of having always having to do the right thing. Because, man, I'm going to screw up. Yeah, sometimes they're right. Yeah, Yeah, and and, and exactly. And and you got to have a way of conveying that to me and to the rest of the team of saying, look, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. And so you can't just have someone that's polite or, 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 or a wallflower that doesn't step forward and, and assertively say, look, this isn't the way it's going to happen. We need to talk about this. And that's who I want on my team. I got to have someone that is not afraid to come up to me and say, you're full of crap. You know, but your book. got to back it up. Yeah. They just can't just pull it out of, you know, where. Right. Right. Um, I don't like you. I don't like your hair. Yeah. Your book got me thinking too about, uh, you know, putting together teams and I kind of reflected on teams that I've been on and adventure races and so forth. And, um, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of these expeditions after the adrenaline wears off at the start, you get to that point about the middle where you don't see the, the end yet that gets your adrenaline going. It's just that slog every day grinding it out. Right. And there's not always a lot of talking. And I was, it got me reflecting that I think probably something to look for in teammates is somebody who is comfortable inside their own head because you spend a lot of time without distractions. And if you're just not comfortable inside your own head, the the demons that are always going to be talking to you get pretty loud. You're absolutely right. And there is that, that period of malaise uh, that you get into. And I actually kind of look forward to that. And it's, it's kind of a, a period without time or distance because it never seems like you're going to end at that point. I mean, in, in uh, Joseph Heller's famous book, Catch-22, there's a character in there who wants to live forever. And he knows he can't live forever. He knows rationally that's impossible. So what he does is he makes his life as boring as possible. So it just feels like it's forever. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's how, that's how I view that that period in an expedition. And you're all, you're absolutely right. That does happen. I've come to the point where I kind of like that because that's when the team is, is, is uh, running like a well-oiled machine. You get into your routine and it takes two or three weeks to get into a routine of setting up a camp of cooking, of filtering water and doing this, that, and the other. Once you can get to the point where you're doing that without any thought, then you're making some serious progress, but also you're right. You get into your head. Uh, but that's also why I want to bring in new people to expeditions. We've got a couple of new people on our next expedition. I mean, I've been paddling. I've known Jeff for 30 some odd years, Jeff Wiesty. You know, there's not a lot of new information we're going to get from each other, which is a comfort. At the same time, it's nice to hear the new stories. So we're bringing in some new people. I'm always looking at having, having people join our expeditions. Uh, but you know, they, they've got to fit the right personality for that. And so that's always good. And, and I like to hear Jeff tell his old stories that I've heard a million times to new people. So that's a lot of fun to hear also. And hopefully he thinks the same. Who knows? He's probably thinking, oh, great. But that middle section, you're right. You got to be comfortable in your own head. You got to be comfortable with endlessness. And we're just cranking out the miles. I, on my expeditions, I would listen to an iPod, and I still have an iPod, of, of poetry. And I would, I would spend days on end on the same poem on repeat like the Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, classic poems, and then recite them. And, and I'd also like to sing, so I'll sing to myself sometimes. But uh, things like that, but I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I, know, I know one time on the Amazon, we, we're three guys, so you know, conversation isn't necessarily that important to us. And we, we were having several hours, and then all of a sudden, you know, one of us said, hey, what do y'all been thinking about? And I said, well, I've been building a house. 
uh, pyramid house and it's two story and it's this, that, and the other. And I went through, cause I'm a contractor in the building. And, uh, you know, this is what I was doing and so on and so forth. And, and then the other guys would talk about what they've been doing in their mind for the past few hours. So it's always interesting to see, see what they're doing. Several explorers, I'm sure, in your line of business and on this amazing podcast, Whiskey and a Map, that talk about their depression when they're finished. And I've run into that, and it is deep. And it's when you're done, it's like a couple of, you're thrilled to see your family. You know, to have a little romance, which you miss out there. You're thrilled to get some great food and start putting some weight back on and, and things like this. So all these things that you've been missing all this time, you're, you're back at it. But then after about a week, the depression sets in. And you realize, you know, reaching that goal was fun, but that wasn't, that wasn't while I was there. Yeah, you, really just, you just think back to a particular spot on the river that caught your attention, that, that uh, waterfall that was coming in at just the right time. The daily routine, the existence out there. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Well, this is a perfect segue into the Northwest Passage. And Arctic Cowboys, which is on the T-shirt. <laughs> so what's coming up? Yeah, we we attempted to kayak the entire Northwest Passage last year with our team of three. And uh, there are some things that, of all the research I did for the past three years on it, there are some things that we, we still had to learn. And we did. We, we ended up going about 260 miles. And now we're coming back with a new plan, much smarter and we're very excited about it. And I'm even more optimistic about being the first to ever cover the entire 2,000 miles of the Northwest Passage uh, in, a, in a human-powered vessel. Uh, this is either rowing or kayaking. Uh, there have been plenty of people sail it. There's some some people that have done a, a good portion of it, kayaking. Uh, John Waterman, for one, has probably written the best book on it ever, uh, Arctic Crossing. And John, John has given me some really good advice. But there's no one that's actually gone from the one perimeter to the other perimeter uh, of the 2,000-mile Arctic, uh, I mean, Northwest Passage, as, as Roald Amundsen had done. He was the first to actually navigate it uh, over water only. And for those who are geographically uh, challenged, where is the North Passage and what is it? The Northwest Passage is a series, it could be several different routes that go through the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. And that is above the mainland of Canada, between Canada and the North Pole. There's a there's a whole uh, uh, archipelago, you know, which is a, a group of islands, very large islands, that goes from on the east side, Baffin Bay, over to the Beaufort Sea on the west side. And the Beaufort Sea is the sea that's just north of Alaska. So this goes, Baffin Bay goes, is in between Greenland and uh, Canada. It's this large uh, bay, Baffin Bay. And uh, the Beaufort Sea is part of the Arctic Ocean north of Alaska. So there's this huge archipelago, and you can weave your way through these islands in any one of different configurations, and it's called the Northwest Passage. There's not just one one route. But we're going to be taking a route very similar to what was taken by Roald Amundsen in 1906 uh, with a slight variation. We're going to go down Navy Board and then cut through Bellot Strait instead of going straight down through Peel Sound, which, which uh, was blocked when he was there. And this must be a special trip for you, especially since Amundsen did it. Yeah. And actually, I did not know a whole lot about Amundsen before I started doing research on the passage. And then I, I, I read the books about him and, and did some more research on it. And that's, that's where I, 
ended up really admiring the guy. I mean, you know, he was the first uh, human being to the South Pole. There's this you know, somewhat infamous race between he and Robert Falcon Scott. And by then, Amundsen had been through the Northwest Passage, and he learned about living in the and traveling in the Arctic from the Inuit there. Whereas Scott came in with the, the British bravado and and uh, hubris and figured, you know, the British way was the best way and and ended up being his demise. But uh, literal yeah, demise. Well. But Amazon learned from people who lived in those times and, of course, was very successful. Um, smaller team, you know, polar uh, appropriate uh, gear, dogs, the whole bit, everything that the North Pole uses. So, yeah, the, to follow in, in his steps is, is pretty amazing. But also, you know, John Ross and several other explorers up there that were looking for the missing Franklin expedition is also very exciting because there was a lot of history, you know, from the 1700s to current times. And there's a lot of history up there that a lot of people don't know about. And a lot of it's still preserved in weather stations along the banks. There's a lot of obvious Inuit history. Up there, and we've uh, developed a lot of friends up there in the new communities. Titus Alulu, well, shout out to Titus and Pond Inlet, and uh, all, all our other friends that have really taught us things that we could not have learned until we actually got there. Small things that are huge when you're on the water. Like, by the way, it's colder on the water than it is on land. Things like that. That means a lot. Do you have a date set for this next attempt? We're going to leave hopefully about a month earlier than we did last time. We left the beginning of August last year. We're going to leave the beginning of uh, July this year, still from Baffin Bay and, and head west to the Beaufort Sea, primarily because that's the prevailing winds. And also we want to leave. We don't, the Leaving from the east uh, means that winter will be chasing us because we're further north by several latitudes. And, uh, heading south. So the weather will be getting colder behind us. Whereas if we go the other direction, we are going to try to beat the winter to the end. And I think that's people that have tried what we're doing before ran into that problem because they would run into ice and they couldn't get past us. Whereas we're starting in the most icy conditions, the harder, technically harder conditions and getting to those first and finishing, you know, Coronation Gulf and, and the Amundsen Bay and the areas down south, which won't be frozen over probably until December. Now, for those folks who want to especially follow that expedition, follow you and your exploits, how can they do that? Well, you can look at westhansen.com. That's W-E-S-T-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And from there, you can find our Arctic Cowboys uh, website uh, link. And we uh, have a wonderful webmaster and general all-around Tech genius, and, and I know he cringes at me calling him that, but Tom McGuire has, came on the team last year, and, you know, he's one of these guys that will start explaining something to you that's, that you just have to stop him because it's so technical. It's so amazing. He has mastered the whole wind, weather, wave thing up there, so his predictions are extremely accurate, um, and he has set up a tracking system that people can follow us, 10-minute hits, so people can see us in real time while we're up there. Now he's setting it up that we'll be able to send photographs from those hits where we are so people can actually see some live, not footage, but at least some some, some uh, still shots while we're up there. So go to arcticcowboys.com 
or westhanson.com and follow us live starting uh, this summer. I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Michael. Any final thoughts? Well, yeah. There's a lot of mistakes. A couple of things I'd like to shoot down real quick that, that I think a lot of the general public think. People that do what I do aren't superhuman. And you can learn everything you need to know to do what we do. Yes, you have to train. You have to get your skills up. You have to do all the right things. But if you really want to do it, you know, seek out people who have done it before and learn from them. Uh, I've People email me, you know, pretty frequently and ask me about Amazon expeditions or, or, or something else that I've done, like going to Russia when we did the Volga River. I'm happy to share, and most people are. I think most explorers are a lot more accessible than you think. Uh, Eric Larson, Polar Explorer, I had coffee with him last time I was in Crested Butte. But Eric's such a great guy, and he was happy to come over and have coffee. And it's, it's, there are some very notable people out there that are actually probably within reach. So if you're interested in doing something like this, hunt down these people. Uh, take a chance. Talk to them. I think most of them are going to be very helpful and, and quite amenable. Uh, the other thing is that people that I do what I do, there's only a, a very small, maybe you know, less than 10% that have the money to do it. The, the, the expeditions you may hear great things about, some of them, you know, if they're, if Jimmy Chen's associated with it, sure, you can, you can know this is a million dollar expedition and it's well funded. But when we have a sponsor, you know, it's usually a gear sponsor. We raise the money ourselves. Uh, everybody on the team works. Uh, you know, I'm a social worker and a carpenter. A lot of these expeditions you see out there, Erden Uruk recently had to stop his, uh, circumnavigation of the planet and climbing all the major peaks on the planet because of lack of money. It's as simple as that. It looks like with his, his, his rowing rig that he might have a lot of money, but that's not the case. Most people are just like me. They're worker bees. They're trying to get by. We don't have any financial sponsors. If anybody knows one, have them give me a call. But just keep that in mind when you're, when you're following us across the Arctic that, you know, the four of us that are going this year, we're just working stiffs. And we're, we're making the best with what we have to do this, you know, amazing journey. So just keep those couple of things in mind and be really appreciated. Well said. Outstanding. West, this has been a pleasure having this conversation with you. And I hope uh, maybe this time next year we'll have you back on and you can tell us all about the Northwest Passage. It'll be pretty exciting, Michael. All right, Rust. We'll see you down the road. Be safe. Take care, Michael. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>